I'll just I'll say a few things now, which we probably pick up later on. <coughs> <coughs> to the um, end of the retreat it's good to feel one can um, um, review and, and the, uh, store up the resources you know, how to get some overview of one's practice and uh, skills so the most enduring kind of um, result of practice is, is discernment knowing panya. so we can recognize how quickly um, you know some of the effects of calm or, or samadhi seem to disappear just in a matter of minutes <laughs> even <laughs> so you know we can spend weeks kind of getting them primed up and they can seem to go down to some extent within within uh, quite brief time it's not easy to, to sustain the level of absorption but one pro- probably the what one can sustain is, is the is the, the wisdom and the know-how of how to what things one should protect oneself from if you like guard oneself from or, or you know, where hindrances take over that that we can actually just basically defend ourselves from the attack of these negative um, currents and thoughts and <coughs> tendencies in our lives. <coughs> so how we can um, <coughs> have a practice that, that acts <coughs> that helps to repair or heal things and nourish us so you, you learn how to make a meditation practice something that maybe like has a yogic quality to it actually makes you feel good <coughs> and tones you up so it's not just a, um, you know hard work all the time it's it's maybe effort is required and application is required but the chin result is just a simple quality of feeling well and the ability to use meditation or contemplative skills just to to make oneself feel well. So the hindrances that come from feeling just run down or or ragged don't take over <coughs> on that level. And also we can particularly in a <coughs> in a lifetime of practice or one's making a commitment to a situation, to a mode of, of conduct for the, for a year, two years, three years, or longer. You get that sort of thing. So not just a quick 
you know, ten day patch up job, but something a bit longer than that. Then how to keep the sense of aspiration going. You know. How we can how we can keep that kind of sense of there is a goal, there is a further, there is a point, there is a going on. So the hindrances that will tend to take over because one feels one gets into a kind of lethargic or stale or stagnant state of just getting by uh, whereby some of the, the sharpness or the brightness of the of the life is dulled into sort of semi-domesticated suburban um, pallor <laughs> you know that, that those hindrances can uh, can be can be cleared, and also um, you know, like another level is is the the um, hindrances that tend to take over from uh, feeling one sh- should be something. One should be at a certain point, a certain place. One should be something. Mm. And so it can be that kind of mental habit that's that's fretful and trying, you know, wondering where I am, what level am I at, what stage am I at? You know, is this the real thing or not? So you get these kind of hindrances that take over like that, concerned with the sense of being something. Mm. And so these different, one can kind of look at practice rather like that. And just knowing how to, when we get into areas of of uh, sense of <coughs> um, Pointlessness, or, or um, you know, weariness and tiredness, or stagnation, or either thinking we are something, or thinking we aren't something. You know, you get the idea that we are, a, we have, a, we are a certain level. You know, so you get give rise to the sense of con- the qualities of conceit, conceiving what is this or that. Or, you know, so that this always then taints the way that we view the world. You know, like either positive or negative. So when we, we have a negative conceit of ourselves, then we tend to underestimate uh, the value of what we think or say. Well, I'm just a, I'm just a, you know. So there's that sense of always underestimating or, or understating uh, what one says or does. And then the opposite extreme, which is less common, is one who tends to overestimate or overstate, you know, because I am a this, you know, then, you know, my ideas on spaghetti are better than anybody else's. <laughs> you know, what do you, so you, you get the conceit, which doesn't mean that you're, you're not necessarily, doesn't mean you haven't realised something, but it does mean that that, that it kind of keeps it from becoming a self and just recognises there are there are times or occasions when the mind arrives at this fruition uh, but that fruition doesn't cover uh, how to cook spaghetti or um, things like that you know, so you don't get into that, that the triumphalism which means 
tends to overestimate the value of what one says or does on all levels. Probably people tend to you know, think the other way, think that because they can't meditate they're no good at cooking spaghetti or you know, they can't you know, say anything. So you know, one of the problems in giving, in giving Dhamma talks is tendency to assume that because one's mind does get affected by hindrances or doubt or worry that one therefore per se is incapable of any degree of, of wisdom <laughs> you know, it's really it, to recognise just how that the there are times when those faculties are bright are there and there are times when there aren't or there are times when one you know one, one can one can speak from an occasion rather than a self. One can speak from a, a place rather than rather than a, um, an identity. So, for probably for uh, at the bottom le- level of this um, process of 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 you know continuing practice is the reference to. To just uh, protecting oneself in, in a sense of <coughs> when one's not, say, meditating or uh, you know, not actually in, in a involved doing formal practice, then we fall. We can um, look at things like, uh, or when we are we are meditating, we can't actually do it. The mind doesn't seem to do it. Won't do it. Then we, the first level of things we do is uh, we come to a sense of just the, the moral causality, which is one does something good sim- in simple terms. Um, you understand the principle of, of, of ethical causality. One does something good and derives benefit from that. So that's always, if you like, the bottom line uh, in, 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 in this Dhamma discipline is that whether one can, you know, whether meditate or not meditate, or however well it's going or not going, we can do good and refrain from doing evil. And uh, th- there is a result of that. You know, it's not one does it in order that one will get a good result. The result happens naturally if we just approach that in that natural way and open up. So, you know, it's found it very helpful when in certainly in my own practice, just having vineyard training um, to be able to just know how to do specific things properly. You know, just like washing a bowl or um, looking after robes or looking after a person. You know, so one can do good um, and enjoy it uh, and get the, the, feel, the feeling of connecting to that as a source of well-being, um, which is very helpful when other um, Strengths aren't there, or things aren't going so well in other departments. So, if you like, there's first of all the when we saw ethical, I mean, first of all, basically precept, and then observance, and then the practices of of kindness, kindness, compassion, um, keeping those going. Sometimes when the meditation gets stale, you're trying to focus and concentrate on some sensation or, or body thing. It just starts to get stale, just turning it into um, cultivating gratitude and kindness, reflecting, reflecting on gratitude and kindness, 
thinking of people who one feels uh, uplifted by or moved by. Mm. Or people in distress, or even trying to practice cleaning the mind from uh, any grudge or malice towards people one doesn't feel, one feels some antipathy towards. So that's always you know, a skillful thing to be able to come back to in, 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 in the life, in the long run. So the, the, with that, then the hindrances that, that t- will tend to cluster because one feels incapable of other things. So when one gets depressed or weary or fed up or are, are removed because one, one is, sees one's c- capacity to bring around a particular benefit, a particular beneficial effect. And one sees that, does it, experiences it and experiences the result of it. Result of it is there is uh, a positive mental sphere, or like a sphere of release, it's called, which means that for that particular period of time, which may be quite short period of time or longer, depending on how one how one keeps cultivating it, there is a sense of the mind being released from the effects of ill will, depression, despair, cynicism, doubt so on. You know, one feels happy, one feels joyful. So always to feel one that as 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 a fundamental mode of, of practice. And um, the body of virtue. The body of goodness. Secondly, the, the sense of, of healing and nourishing, so call this, roughly speaking, a, more like a yogic um, exercises or practices. And these are to do primarily with um, practices of, of samatha, although it would always require a degree of wisdom and discernment in order to cultivate them. So with the practices like actually going into to bodily sense is the sense of the body knowing how to to um, first of all fully contact get into fully contact bodily experience walking standing sitting you know, you can do it, if you can't do it sitting do it standing or walking or lying down you can do it without falling asleep mm. and just getting into the specifics of this particular movement gives rise to these particular sensations, this particular posture makes the body feel like this. It's very simple, almost as if one is doing a a subtle form of of hatha yoga. Sitting just for the sake of sitting and feeling out the stresses or the strains or the tensions or the the way the body actually is. Um, And exploring it, getting to the kind of more refined um, aspects of that. We can, with that, we can actually begin to um, contact and develop a whole uh, reference to to the body sense, connectedness of it. So, particular subtler uh, energies that are arising just in sitting, 
uh, where where there are tensions, where there are releases, where there are flows in the bodily sense. Uh, and so this is a process of, of making oneself feel good. Uh, and like the moral or ethical causality, it's it's a very it's right in there as part of what one uh, what Buddhist practice is about. I think it's sometimes understated because um, you know, people will take these things, or we tend to see this as very you know refined or, or kind of expert virtuoso practices. But uh, they c- you can t- you can take them for a long way, just like yoga. You can develop it from doing a few asanas down to something very very um, detailed, or like if you're doing chi exercise, you can do just a simple four or five moves, or you can do these incredibly beautiful developed hundred move things. But just to recognise, you you know that you don't. It's not always that you don't start at the hundred move. You start at like four or five. You don't start. You know, incredibly complex asanas like the scorpion or the pheasant. You start with simple things like the tree. You can just stand there or the triangle, and and just being able to do the simple using that same analogy. You know, we we can we can develop a sense of body reference and well-being without being that necessarily that refined and gifted at it. Just the sense of the body, um, body sense, the balance of the body. The checking out how the body sits, uh, whether it's all there when we sit, or whether bits of it are just kind of leaning on other bits, um, whether we can breathe fully and completely, developing a full, complete breath, you know, which means looking, investigating some of the tensions or the holdings in the body, um, and being prepared to kind of work with it and you know, suffer movements, releasing locks. That occur in the body, particularly uh, once one begins to learn it, you see there are particular uh, places where the lockings occur. If you work from the, the top, it's the, the the eyes and the jaw will, will tend to have a locking effect in the head. So you notice your jaw is tight, uh, or your eyes are tight, your forehead's kind of slightly compressed. And just acknowledging that, being able to relax and release that, and uh, seeing you, you, you get the sense of what we call opening, opening the head. So the head, instead of feeling like a tight, screwed-up thing, becomes something much more open and lightly experienced. And those two places, particularly, are places where people get very tense in their lives. You know, the determined, steely gaze, the gripped jaw, are often the signs of the, of the, you know, successful person. Mm. What you require in order to get along is that sort of sense of gripping and pushing. So just being able to go to places like that and release it, and uh, even if it doesn't feel particularly one-pointed um, or focused, focusing on on a whole field of effects rather than a particular point and looking first of all in terms of samatha to experience a whole field of feeling okay, feeling good rather than particular going to a particular point like the nostrils or something and trying to get it refined around there 
um, without first of all getting a sense of overall ease or well-being. And I think that that can be uh, a mistake. If we approach a fine-pointed meditation theme with a mind that's already locked up and tense, we can end up getting even more tense and just or not wanting to do it at all. Oh, I can't do this. No more. Enough. You just want to... So, very often, the simple teaching of just making yourself feel well. If you work down the body and the shoulders, the way the shoulders hang, again, the locking up in the shoulders is, occurs from the shoulders to the neck. So just being able to kind of drop and relax one's shoulders. In the joints between, in the arms, you know, um, wherever there's a joint, then there's a, there's a, a gripping that occurs between the two sides of that joint. Notice that. So if you have the shoulder or the elbow, then in a way, the two limb, the two limbs or parts of the body on either side of the joint are bound together across that joint by ligaments and tendons and so forth. So they're often in the state of not being quite relaxed. They're on sort of orange alert, not red alert, but just be ready to go, ready to jump. So then they're always slightly held. And just see if you actually, if you sit, whether you can really you know, drop your arms so that they're just, you know, the arm is broken up into bits and pieces and systematically going through the body and opening up and relaxing the joints because they don't, you know, without deliberately try, tensing up, one still has a background sense, a sense of tension. It's lesser because when you come from being 98% tense down to only 60% tense, you think you're relaxed. You think, well, I'm pretty relaxed now, I'm only kind of <laughs> <laughs> jumpy and snow. It does, it is pretty relaxed, but when you're still 60% tense, it's not, you know, you can go a lot better than that, going down to kind of 20% or is what we're looking for. You know? So you really have a sense of mostly, you know, greater than half sense of feeling pretty at ease, over 50% relaxed is what we're looking for. Yeah. So that requires often some just some detailed scrutiny and working around in the body. The arms, the neck, the head, the solar plexus, you know, the diaphragm region, uh, you know, being able to kind of fully breathe out. Mm. So working on a good sitting posture and also feeling, you know, working on attitude. Sometimes you get into the feeling of, well, you know, sit through it, work through it, push through it, which is quite good if you've got the if you've got resources there. If you are, if you have got a strength and a and a sense of well-being, and then difficulties that arise, yeah, one can work through them. If you don't actually have that going then it gets a little foolhardy. You know, it's like troops going into battle without any guns. And we'll, we'll work through it. <laughs> Just keep going, you know. Or uh, you're lighting a candle in a, in a ten force nine gale. You know, it's not strong enough to stand up. So just to, to realise, before we really understand anything, or get any of these kind of ideals about 
you know, wisdom and what we're going to do, just trying to get everyone to feel, to feel okay. Yeah, the well-being and and think of that as a, as a reasonable goal, a reasonable uh, aim in, in, in meditation practice, mm. and then how we can how we can actually work with that. Mm. So when <coughs> you're fine with that, then there's a the the, the experience of the feeling or the vedana. Painful and pleasant and neutral have their their traps in them. And then we've attached to pleasant feeling. The tendency is to go from bodily pleasant to mental excitement. Um, you know, mental fizzy, mental excitement, fizziness of mind, or excitedness of mind, or um, overconfidence. You know, feel, I'm feeling really great. You know, so you, you feel a bit triumphant, a bit inflated. So you go from a sense of the physical well-being gets taken up by the mind, and then we find we're actually losing some of the specific moment-by-moment references, uh, and just by attaching to the pleasant, pleasant feeling. So with pleasant feeling, then you try to just hold it in the body and. Uh, the, the teachings are to, to fully explore and spread that that subtle pleasant feeling through all the tissues of the body. So it's rather like just kind of massaging, sitting in it, and um, resting in it, uh, not picking it up with the mind. So the body, the presence of body, has a has a grounding effect on pleasant feeling. Painful feeling, the tendency for that is to, to, with painful feeling, is to get, uh, uh, mind gets worried or tense or frightened or disturbed, profoundly disturbed. And that's trying to run away or sort it out or make it otherwise. Mm. So often with the unpleasant feeling, you work on the, the mind or on just getting the mind to to look in, investigate the unpleasant feeling. <coughs> Primarily, you know, what is the problem here? You know, what is the, there's the unpleasant Vedana, like physical discomfort, and then, you know, there's the sorrow or the anger or the irritation or the fed upness with it in the mind and can we can we actually clear clear out that quality of the mental suffering if you like and just go to the physical uh, feeling of that so so trying to be more analytical about the quality of of dukkha and again this is just to de- to deal with the, the feeling quality um so this can, can of course also we're just aiming at a sense of of getting to a, a state of mental balance in that sense of equilibrium. Mm. It doesn't mean, of course, this is the end of the story. If you're sitting on a drawing pin and you get up, basically, <laughs> um, 
you know, so you don't just sit there kind of in experiencing pain. Um, if there's something you can you can do about it, but you can when you do have uh, discomforts and so forth, then to be able to to just get the mind to um, be cool, be be careful, be be deliberate, be reflective about it, rather than just going to um, negative mind states over that. This all is in the process of how we we manage to stabilize and calm ourselves. So again, in terms of practice, it could be just like that. Um, and then, in, in with the unpleasant mental feeling, you know, so being blamed or having some disappointing news or fearful thing, you know, something one doesn't feel one can manage to do, you have to do if you're anxious about that or anticipating the future. Being able to actually investigate that and seeing the that rather than trying to you know these things not to happen you know say the disappointing news or the the perplexing situation or the endless conundrums that life presents us with of un, unsolvable you know situations so you always feel like you're in a wrestling match with life um, you know, just look at the, uh, or get into making something useful out of it by um, working with the, the unpleasant feeling and the un- negative mind states that can arise. Doesn't mean that things are pleasant, but that one doesn't have to suffer with them. So that makes one a lot stronger and a lot more at ease with the way that life actually is. So, when this is again, if you, if you cultivate it properly, some of it is not something that's purely a, a kind of precious hothouse plant. It, you know, it's, it's a working thing that you, you can take out and work with in daily life. How to calm when one's feeling up and high and happy, how to stabilise that. How to stabilize and and uh, find oneself grounded when one's uh, confronted with the unpleasant, the unhappy, the the anguished or disappointing, the fearful. What is the problem here? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, with the mind will come, generally come up with some rather exaggerated statement. I'm always, it's impossible, I can't, it's going to be too, you know, wait a minute. What, why, is that really it? Well, not quite, but okay, you know, and then <laughs> just sometimes exploring, like, like, um, what would it be without that particular what would it really feel like to not have that particular mental process happening? Not to suppress the thought, but just to consider, you know, could we be without that panic? What, what would it be like? But not... not
one can manage to do and you have to do if you're anxious <coughs> about that or anticipating the future. Being able to actually in- investigate that and seeing the that rather than trying to you know these things not to happen, you know, say the disappointing news or the the perplexing situation or the endless conundrums that life presents us with of un, unsolvable, you know, situations. So you always feel like you're in a wrestling match with life. Um, you know, just look at the, uh, or get into making something useful out of it by um, working with the, the unpleasant feeling and the un- negative mind states that can arise. Doesn't mean that things are pleasant, but that one doesn't have to suffer with them. So that makes one a lot stronger and a lot more at ease with the way that life actually is. So, when this is again, if you if you cultivate it properly, someone is not something that's purely a, a kind of precious hothouse plant. You know, it's it's a working thing that you you can take out and work with in daily life. How to calm when one's feeling up and high and happy, how to stabilise that. How to stabilise and and uh, find oneself grounded when one's uh, confronted with the unpleasant, the unhappy, the, the anguished or disappointing. The fearful. What is the problem here? Mm. And then you know, but the mind will come, generally come up with some rather exaggerated statement. I'm always. It's impossible. I can't. It's going to be. Too, you know, wait a minute. What? Why is that really it? Mm. Well. Not quite, but okay, you know, and then <laughs> just sometimes exploring like like um what would it be without that particular what would, what would it really feel like to not have that particular mental process happening, not to suppress the thought, but just to consider you know could we be without that panic what what would it be like? But not not actually trying to get like it, just to imagine, and then putting the two together, you know, with the sense of oh, I was only trusted, or and it's often in that just the sense of that imagination you begin to recognise what you're actually not providing for yourself at that time, what your mind is not providing, confidence, trust. Um, hmm? Time, space, room, and then there's the acknowledgement that um, I'm the one who do- takes that away. Nobody else takes that away. I'm the one. Who, I'm the one who destroys my confidence. I'm the one who doesn't trust me. In you know, using those terms very crudely, it's happening here is where the mistrust is. Or mm. so, just to be able to acknowledge and uh, take away. The places where the hindrances will 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 cluster 
and uh, um, break up one's sense of of collectedness, one's sense of calm, one's sense of steadiness and well-being. And explore those things, the unpleasant mental feelings and states. We can always put it outside as they would or she doesn't or it must. What's that? What would happen if you couldn't make that thought? You couldn't if that wasn't there. We couldn't actually use a thought process to to project that onto something else or onto ourselves. I'm like this. I'm like that. Who couldn't say that anymore? What would it, what would bring that around? Often it's a, a feeling that uh, um, the fear of failure, of uh, being overwhelmed, being blamed, being rejected. So uh, if we if we Cultivate, then you, we we find in that in that sense of of laying aside those those dhammas, those mental objects, those mental habits, a sense of of stability in in situations. I do not um, choose. I do not blame myself for not being capable of everything. I do not blame myself for not being perfect in everything or anything. You know, <laughs> you, know you see, see it, when you actually think of it, you know, of course I'm not. I know I'm not perfect, but emotionally one doesn't accept that. You know, in a way, we still have these strange ideas that, or sort of background assumptions that one can only be allowed to exist if one is. No, perfect. And uh, so, just well-being is not a, not a deserved thing. It's not an earned thing. It's a it's a natural thing. So just recognize that you don't have to deserve to feel good, or you know. Be the kind, right kind of person gets to feel good. It's it's a natural thing. When one is in harmony with Dhamma, one feels good. When one stops um, being frightened of oneself, one feels good. Or ashamed of oneself, embarrassed by oneself. (coughs) So that's a, an important part of what um, practice is about. Another theme is the sense of always having a sense of on, you know a goal or an on, onward quality, you know onward movement, aspiration. So things being able to at least uh, you know, bring up ideas. Certain idealism to it. I mean, we have 
this is something to be it's rather more refined because if you do this early on then you end up always never being able to make the ideals and you, you think so it just feeds right into your sense of, of being a failure you know you set up these ten foot high hurdles of arahantship and sublime patience and radiant samadhi and effortless nibbana and then you then you're kind of coming a cropper because you can't get your you can't get your spoon out of the honey jar or whatever you're so <laughs> picking out on some sweets so this is kind of more ref- refined thing but it kind of, if you've established a sense of how to how to get moral and ethical support how to get support of calm and well-being then it's it's always it's always good to have something to to do if you like you know in that sense um, feeling oh, feeling good feeling okay and hey, there's something there's a more there's a further and it could be um, you know service it can be a sense of supporting the dhamma supporting the sangha supporting the practice supporting you know that those kinds of things and you get that um, devotional uh, quality mm. the Buddha said one should not be just contented with feeling feeling well until you've begun to to use that basis for um, uh, as, as for what it is a basis firm basis rather than an end in its own its own right. There are hindrances that uh, occur around that when we're doing things for the the Dhamma or welfare of the Sangha or for Buddhism or um, the monastery or whatever you know, or things of that nature is that you get caught in this kind of idealism mm. and which means that um, one can get disillusioned by the the, the uh, you know the, the actual practicalities of it or disillusioned by um you know, people or events or the, or the teachings or the ideas and get kind of lost in it and get idealistic and then of course things never in on the one level things never actually match up to that we get was a um, I think one of the problems that uh probably bedevils us all from time to time and it was, is the problem of uh, monistic idealism I know that people spend a lot of time anguishing over this topic um, and Venerable Nipako and I were thrashing it out the other morning monistic idealism and actually we, we finally came down for apophatic non-dualism as a, as a, as a remedy I'm sure after midnight Winnipeg will expound on this point. So I don't want to steal all his thunder right now. 
But you find yourself saying, you know, it shouldn't be this way. Uh, this is not proper. You may want to one refers to a principle. You know, the monastery should be like this. This is a monastery. It's like this. Or monks should be like this. Or this is nuns are supposed to be like this. And actually, what's happening is you, you've got this icon. You know, which one is using because it's it's something that gives you aspiration, inspiration to be a good monk, be a good nun, to you know live in a really good monastery and so forth. But then one's got caught by it. Um, by the, the defects on, on that level. So it's when monism is when we, we look for a, a, a singularity that, that encompasses everything. You know, like Taoism is, is a monistic um, thing, or uh, Advaita, where you get into the sense of there being a one, or a whole, or a wholeness, or a truth, or a law, or a principle. And on a kind of worldly level, it distills down to these particular objects like the monastery or Buddhism, or I thought Buddhism didn't do this. You know, I thought... You know, so some people go on us about putting fences across our land to, to protect the birds. I thought Buddhists didn't believe in fences. You know. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you kind of... Whatever you, whatever you think is good, you, you create this ideal of it. And then there's always the way that... <coughs> through that one gets a sense of... of, of inflexibility um, and even conceit mm. so the, the so there's a sense of, of apophatic non-dualism apophasy is, is, a, is, a, is a non-statement I mean, it doesn't actually proclaim any kind of truth any law, any god any oneness, any unity it, it just says, it doesn't say anything about it. You know. So it's just like, it's not this, is all it says. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. It can't be said. So, and, the, and it's non-dualistic in that we're saying, you know, there isn't even something other than this non-statement. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing other than this non-statement. <laughs> so this is a very very uh, secure position to chan <laughs> 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 or something so with this when we experiencing life it's just we say that basically this comes down on, on world on a, on all day everyday level on the philosophical philosophical position is this sense of, every, of things being wrong is an impermanent one. <laughs> this, this, this feeling of things being uh, unsatisfactory is, is dependently arisen. And instead of saying, well, yeah, and then, but, there's a, no, no, just saying this sense of suffering that we're experiencing is something that changes. You see, so, you know, the, monistic idealist one say and it changes into the one, the nibbana, the deathless, the end, the result, the Tao, the Tao you know. But the, the wise, prudent, apathetic non dualist <laughs> says this strange sense of things being wrong will change. It comes and goes. That's a kind of very you know, that's a quite a uh, skillful 
thing, because then we don't actually have to state the way it should be, or way it is even. We just know that this, this is this is changing, and it's dependently arisen. It's not self. The self is that is the quality of will arises the quality of will or volition that seeks the most agreeable and stable place in any situation, <coughs> any context. When things are disagreeable, what it seeks is the position of um, standing outside it and making a statement about it, judging it. That's the most agreeable and secure position it can make. It should, whatever it is, it shouldn't be like this. <laughs> it shouldn't be this way, you know. So that that that's where, it, you know, that's where the self crystallizes. And so when one is idealistic, it can be that it that actually gives rise to that particular gives a, a hold for that tendency to to occur. But if you're really close up, then you just recognise this sense of things being wrong changes. Is it changing? And if one is not actually, you know, judging it, trying to get past it, thinking it shouldn't be happening, feeling it's one's fault, uh, feeling it's somebody else's fault, if one isn't doing that, it, it is a changing thing. It's just that. And it's, uh, with that, the tendency towards passion, uh, Irritation, uh, resentment, depression, uh, judgment, uh, hard-heartedness, uh, conceit, don't have a place to, to, to land. And so with the extinguishing of those tendencies, the mind is released. And so, of course, you know, in, into what? And you see, it's your monistic idealist again. Raphaphatic non-dualist just says that kind of thought changes, doesn't it? So, um, if we keep these things in mind, um, then we will not uh, have wasted our time on this planet.